We're continuing our my least favorite subject to talk about, and that's false prophets. But as we said last week, they're so often mentioned in the Bible by Jesus Christ and by Paul the Apostle, we would have to rip out a lot of our Bibles if we didn't want to discuss it or read about it. We'd have to rip out large sections. In fact, entire books would have to be removed. Like the book of First John would have to entirely be eradicated from the New Testament. But Jesus made a promise. It's an unfortunate promise, but it has come true. He said, many false prophets will arise. And they will come to you in sheep's clothing. Now, first of all, they will come to you. You don't have to find them or go to them. They'll just come to you. They knock on your door. You see them in various places. They often come to your television. And they come into your living room or bedroom via the television. But he, they don't announce themselves. You'll never see a false prophet knock on the door and say, Pardon me, I'm your local neighborhood false prophet. I have some deceptive doctrine. Do you mind if I deceive you for a while? They'll come in sheep's clothing. They'll look like a sheep. Think this guy's a Christian. They'll sound like a sheep. They'll say all the right words, all the right lingo. They'll mention Jesus. They'll mention God. They'll mention the Bible, the Holy Spirit. And you go, these guys are Christians. Ask them to define their terms. It's not just the word that is used. It's the meaning that is attached to that word or poured into that word that makes all the difference. The Jesus of many cultists is not the same Jesus of the New Testament, the Jesus that you profess to believe. A local newspaper, I found an article. It says, Madam Linda, half price with this ad, guaranteed to cure evil problems in 20 minutes. Now think of that, guarantee, 20 minutes. That's quite a, a boast. Seeing is believing. I wonder if Thomas wrote that. <laughs> what you see with your eyes, your heart will believe. Are you suffering? Are you sick? Do you have bad luck? Bring your troubles to Madam Linda today and get rid of them tomorrow. She advises on all the affairs of life. There is no problem too great she cannot solve. How to hold on to your job when you fail to succeed. Men and women of all races, remove evil influences and bad luck. If you're suffering from alcoholism and cannot find a cure, don't fail to see this gifted lady from God who will help you, Madam Linda. That article tried to mix, like oil and water, God, the one true God that we all have come to know and love, and... Something else, something else that doesn't quite fit. Pagan rituals, New Age ideas. But they've tried. They've tried to incorporate them. There are spiritual pirates out there on the high seas of Christendom who lie in wait for believers. In fact, Jude described them in his book by calling them raging waves of the sea foaming up to their own shame. Now, we kind of mentioned where the flow of this is going. Titus was a young man, raised up by Paul the Apostle. 
and left on an island called Crete, which desperately needed leadership. A work of God had been done there. The Holy Spirit had moved. People were saved. But with the work of God was, and always is, a counterattack of the enemy. Whenever truth springs up, false doctrine springs up. Now, we ought to know that. Jesus gave a parable of the man who sows good seed in his field. And while he is sleeping, an enemy comes in and sows tares that look just like the same plant that was sown by the good landowner. But it's false. Tares among the wheat. And so it was growing. The work of God was growing. The work of the devil through false prophecy was going. And one of the primary works that the devil works today is through false teaching. It's one of the, if not the primary mention in the New Testament. It's like tops the list. Because what you believe determines how you behave. If you believe truth, that truth will conform your lifestyle to it. If you believe what is errant, then your life will become like that. So things were growing on Crete. False prophecy was also growing. And so Paul said, Titus, it's imperative, verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete is to train up godly leaders. He then gives a description of the godly leaders, and then he tells them this is the why the reason that you ought to raise them up. It's because of the false prophets that are there. And if you're new to our study, I think I'll back up to verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. As we mentioned last week, he's not being a racist or a bigot. He's quoting an ancient philosopher of Crete named Epimenides who gave a generalization about this people. This is a pagan philosopher giving a pagan evaluation of a pagan people. And Paul is saying, look, let me quote something you guys are used to hearing. If a pagan philosopher said that about the people in general, then the false prophets who have risen among the church have fulfilled what Epimides was talking about. Verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, Nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now we're going to look tonight at three results that come from trafficking in false doctrine that were true in these people's lives and are true of anyone who decides to expose themselves or be involved in it. First of all, deception. And all these things are mentioned in the text. Deception because of doctrine. We look back in uh, verse 10, and it says, There are many insubordinate idol talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. There was a uh, teacher in a Sunday school class who didn't know where his young students uh, were when it came to terminology. So he said, Does anyone here know the definition of false doctrine? 
Now, that'd be a tough question for a little kid. What is false doctrine? A little kid raised his hand. He said, I know what false doctrine is. And, of course, he wasn't thinking of the term doctrine, but doctor, doctoring. He says, that's when a doctor gives somebody the wrong medicine. That's false doctrine. (laughs) Of course, the teacher understood that this kid didn't quite get it, but, you know, he's got a good point there. That really is a good definition of false doctrine. People who are spiritually sick and need the right cure are giving something, have been given something that is false, that doesn't cure, that doesn't help, that isn't true. That's false doctrine. Actually, I had a friend who went with me to India one time and had this happen to him. He got very sick in India, and that's never a place you want to get sick. Now, you don't want to get sick anywhere, but especially there. Because they have what they call hospitals. But they are not at all what you are thinking a hospital ought to be. We think a hospital ought to be an antiseptic place. You walk down these sparkling hallways and there's people in white outfits and you get in a nice bed and there's windows. And A hospital in India has a cement floor, hanging light bulbs on a cord, no glass in the openings through the walls, old, old beds, and often people are put there to die. Well, my friend happened to go to a hospital because he had an infection. They mistreated him. They gave him the wrong medicine. When he came back to the United States, his doctor said, in about two days you would have been dead. Because they just gave you, they treated you the wrong way. That's false doctoring. And false doctrine is giving someone the wrong spiritual truth when they need something else. Now, what was going on in Crete, remember, was a combination of things. As you read through the text here, there's legalism from the Jewish perspective. There's traditions of men and mysticism all combined to form this Gnostic heresy that was very prevalent there. I want you to notice how important doctrine is. Doctrine, speech, verbalizing truth or verbalizing false truth, error. In fact, the emphasis here is stuff that has been passed on through the mouth, through people speaking wrong things. In verse 10, first of all, there are many insubordinate idle talkers, that is, they talk nothingness, and deceivers. The false talk leads to deception, and that's where the rub is. Uh, Look at verse 11. Those whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments who turn men from the truth. How often we hear people say, does it really matter? Should you get so picky about what a person says or believes in? I mean, it's the general direction. It's the God thing. They talk about God. They have their own way to God. If they're going toward their God, what does it matter? Well, how would you feel if you got in an airplane and you were supposed to go to London, England, and the doctor says, or the doctor. That's false doctrine, see? That's the pilot who was a doctor, but now he's a pilot because he got his flying license, you see. Let's say as you're taking off, he were to announce... We're on our way to London, England, or in that general direction. I figure when I'm high above the clouds, I can look down, I can spot it. Would you feel safe? Or what if he told you that he was looking at a chart 
but he was two degrees off. You might be two degrees off, 20 miles away from the point of origination. doesn't matter all that much. But take that two degrees all the way down the line, and eventually it's so divergent it doesn't even resemble the general direction. Somebody once said, they coined the phrase, I don't know where they got it, you are what you eat. And I think that's true spiritually. I've seen people physically I think that's true of. I knew a person who ate so many carrots, I swear he was turning orange. I'm not making that up. True. I mean, I looked at him, I thought, you're turning orange. I don't know why I shared that with you, but it's important. But you are what you eat spiritually. If you eat the wrong things and you're not fed with spiritual truth, it'll have an effect on you. I heard of a farmer who used to plow his fields and he was sick and tired of paying the high prices for oats down at the market. So he thought what he would do is substitute some of the oats for sawdust. Very, very closely resembles the other. He just put a little bit in and then a little more in and then a little more in and guess what happened? His ox kicked the bucket. Proverbially, he died. You might substitute truth with error, and at first it's so non-discernible by the average Christian. But just a little more and a little more leeway, and pretty soon, spiritually, it can choke the seed. That's why Jesus said, take heed what you hear, take heed how you hear it, and beware of false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly are ravenous wolves. He would often call the Pharisees. And the scribes, the religious leaders of his day. Listen, Jesus was a radical. He's so different from the way people often picture him. When the Pharisees were just talking to the disciples one day, having some kind of a private conversation, Jesus interrupted. He said, what are you telling them? I like that. That's the protective shepherd that we all love. Jesus called them on the carpet. Now, I've got to also say that I think outside the church is different from inside the church. You see, outside the church, we're not called to go out there and change the world's mind about their policies, about their laws necessarily, about the way they think and act. They need conversion. They need salvation. They need the gospel preached to them. To impose your system in a world that doesn't know Christ is going to be very difficult. And you're not called to do that. You're called to obey the laws of the land when they do not contradict the laws of God. Otherwise, you disobey them. But other than that, in the world, you share the gospel with them. But that's different from inside the church. Inside the church, the standards are different. Because the church is where instruction is. The church is where truth is. That's what Paul said. He said, the church is the pillar and the ground of all truth, he wrote to young Timothy. People come for nourishment. People want and need The honest truth. And so, you should give them the truth. And doctrine is a word that is used 37 times in the Bible. Now think about that. Next time somebody says, I don't care about doctrine. It's not important. Really, Jesus mentioned the word and the idea of good, sound doctrine five separate occasions. Beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then later on he said it was the doctrine of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he spoke about those who would bring in false doctrine. In Acts chapter 4, a passage you're familiar with, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking bread and prayer. 
Paul said, until I come, give attendance to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. He wrote that to Timothy in a couple books back. Take heed to yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. To Titus, he said, speak the things which become sound doctrine, which we'll read as we go on. Again, to young Timothy, he said, preach the word. Be ready or instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And by the way, did you know that two places Paul said you should divide over doctrine? I got to make that clear because, well, let's not divide over doctrine. Well, yes and no. It just sort of depends what it is. Never divide over non-essentials. You know, there's a person who will be a, a Christian, a fellow brother, and he might have a different idea about the rapture than you have, or a different idea about spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues or how to worship. Who cares? That doesn't matter. Let's not divide over that. Let's not divide over non-essential doctrines that would divide the whole church. I say let's put our arms around them and love them, especially when we all agree on the tenets, the basic foundational truths of Christianity, right? Let's love each other. Let's have unity in the church. But you should never sacrifice biblical truth upon the altar of unity. Because there is some truth you ought to divide over. For instance, in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul said, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. And then to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, he knows nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such... Withdraw yourself. Now, there have been many churches in the community that we have tried to reach out to, and we've been very successful in doing it, in having crusades or outreaches or concerts. We've had the ability to come together. There have been others who refuse, though we've tried. Uh, They have come to us and say, tell us about how you baptize. And we tell them, and go, that's not the right way to baptize. We baptize them this way. In fact, people baptized in your church, they've told me, aren't Christians. You have to be baptized in our church by our leaders or we don't even recognize you as a Christian. And I say, well, I recognize you as a Christian. I accept you as a Christian, a very narrow-minded one, but you are still a Christian. You're still my brother. I accept you. I can fellowship. I can't fellowship with you. What can you do? But then there are others who are under that umbrella of Christendom who deny that Jesus Christ is God, which he himself plainly said, They deny the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. They deny that Jesus was born of a virgin. They deny the second coming. They deny basic components of Christianity. Paul said, watch out for them. And from such, withdraw yourself. I think the greatest threat to Christianity is on the inside, not the outside. I know we're worried about all of the problems in the world. They're coming to get us. They're going to do this. I think... The thing we have to worry about is the pulpit, not the world. From leadership who, through books, through radio, through television, or just through preaching, could spread that which is not true. To me, 
that is more shocking than what goes on in the world toward the church. And I think that's the idea here, don't you? He says, raise up leaders when you're over there in Crete. Make sure that they're godly men, that they've got good families. They do it for the right motivation. And here's the reason, Titus. The whole reason there ought to be godly leaders is because there are false prophets out there. And so that's a basic principle here. If there's to be a spiritual awakening in the pew, it's got to begin in the pulpit. So pray for leadership. Pray for pastors around the city, around the nation, and around the world. Pray that God would raise them up and keep them. There's a uh, report I got today from a magazine. There's a uh, brother named Tim Stafford who writes for Christianity Today, and he wrote an article a few years back. It's called The Kingdom of the Cult Watchers. He said, less than 20 years ago, a seminary professor wrote a book entitled The Four Major Cults. The Four Major Cults. Nowadays, he would have had to change that to The Forty or the 400 major cults. The growing number and vitality of alternative religions has given rise to a large number of counter-cult or cult-watching groups. In 1988, about 300 such groups were listed in the directory of cult research organizations, and now the directory has more than 500 entries. Although the vast majority of these are shoestring operations run by volunteers, their numbers keep increasing and the ten or so that have substantial budgets have paid staffs and are growing very well. That's the reason that apologetics is so necessary. And if you ever have a chance to go to the apologetics course that is offered here, I think it's on Wednesday night, go to it. Or buy some of the literature that talks about all of the different belief systems that are contrary to the Scripture. Not so that you can get influenced by them, but you know how to witness to those people who are involved. There are predators in pulpits, on television shows, and on the radio. And the more discernment you have, the better off you'll be. Now notice what we see here in these verses concerning these characters. In verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. In this book, he mentions that they went from house to house. What does that mean? The early church never met in a big building like this. They didn't have them except one instance, and that was the temple. And in the temple, there was a great balance in Jerusalem. They met in small groups, but then they met corporately in the court of the Gentiles in Jerusalem, in the temple. However, many of the churches were started as home fellowships. John writes to the elect lady whose church is in her house. Because that's where they met, in the home. So it was very easy when you have a small contained environment to be influential over that small group. That's why if you're a home fellowship leader, or you lead a home Bible study or a kinship group, be careful. That's why that in and of itself I don't think is enough. I think cell groups are great, they're important, we emphasize them, but it's always important to get together for a corporate meeting like this, to discuss those ideas that that new person brought in. I used to teach home fellowships in California, and one of them was in Garden Grove, California. And we had an interesting time. We had all sorts of people who would come in. One gal who came in there and wanted to go in the next room and just be by herself and pray, and what she did is she ripped off the house and left. Another guy came in and was a prophet. You know, he'd come in and with his hands raised, Thus saith the Lord! You know, he'd do one of those numbers. And he told this one gal, 
uh, God told me, young lady, that you're going to be my wife. Some of you heard the story. And uh, I just want you to know I'm hearing from God right now, and he wants you to marry me. And she said, there's one problem, Jack. I've got a wedding ring. I'm married. He said, well then, it's obvious that you haven't been listening to God and you've married the wrong person. Because God wants you and I to get married. She came to me and told me this. And of course, I didn't entertain him or talk to him. I just kicked him out point blank. Get out of here and never come back. That's the idea. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply. I did. Now, you may be sitting tonight listening to this study thinking, I think you're a little too sensationalistic about this. Too conspiratorial. Like there's people out there and they're always coming to get you. Let me tell you something. If you believe that, if you believe there's no problem, I can only say you're bordering on sheer arrogance. Because it happened within years of the first church developing. It happened all over the New Testament. As soon as Jesus Christ left the earth, false prophets arose. As soon as Paul the Apostle left Ephesus, false prophets arose. They were all over the place. In fact, in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said, go ahead and have a seat. We'd rather you not just wander back and forth, but if you're going to come in, just have a seat. Thank you. Galatians chapter 1, it says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. You see, Paul marveled. He goes, man, it hasn't been long. I've just been in Galatia. And I'm troubled that so soon you are removed to another gospel, which he said really isn't another, but there are those who are troubling you to pervert the gospel of grace. And you know what he said after that? He said words that many Christians would drop their jaws at. He said, if we are an angel from heaven, come and preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. The Greek word is anathema, which means cursed below the lowest hell. Very, very strong words. All right. Briefly, how do we avoid from being deceived? Well, number one, it's given to us here. It says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Verse 11, uh, it says their mouths must be stopped. I think this is the task primarily of spiritual leadership. And the motivation is to restore. Notice that it says here that they may be sound in the faith. So step number one, if somebody is spewing false teaching, you are to rebuke them sharply if they're corrupting the truth. You say, well, Skip, isn't that a little severe? I would say yes. And let me fill in a few gaps, because sometimes I'm asked about this. In fact, I've even wondered, there's got to be a balance. Because in one sense, in Galatians 6, Paul said, if somebody's overtaken with a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one gently, or in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So you do it gently. And then Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Verse 24, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be kind to everyone, a good teacher. The Lord's servant must gently teach those who disagree. Then maybe God will let them change their minds so that they can accept the truth. It's obvious then, is it not, that what is happening at Crete is beyond the gentle teaching stage. No doubt they tried that. 
No doubt they tried to entreat him as a brother. And finally he just says, rebuke them sharply. Their mouths must be stopped. There are different levels and God will give you the discernment on what level to reach that person. It's simply a different approach. So rebuke them sharply if you need to. Secondly, don't expose yourself to them. Don't expose yourself to them. Now, if you're just trying to learn that you might share the truth, that's one thing. But the more you expose yourself to that which is false, it might just sort of tweak your own thinking a little bit. That's why Jesus said, take heed what you hear. McCall's magazine reviewed Protestant ministers, surveyed 3,000 of them, and said in an article, quote, a considerable number of these ministers have rejected altogether the idea of a personal God. Does that sound far-fetched to you? I mean, when I read that, I thought, oh, come on, that can't be true. Rejected altogether the idea of a personal God, but that's their article. God, they said, was just the, quote, ground of being, the force of life, a principle of love. A majority of the youngest group said that they cannot believe in the virgin birth, They do not regard Jesus as divine in the traditional way that most Protestants were brought up. Now, this isn't the average college student here. These are 3,000 Protestant ministers. I pray to the ground of all being. He's not a principle. He's a person. He's a holy person. He's a person who created people in his image and likeness. Are you the ground of a being? No, you have a personality. You're a person because you're made in the image of God. And yet it is denied. So... Rebuke them if you need to. First of all, and treat them gently. If that doesn't work, rebuke them sharply. Secondly, don't expose yourself to it. Thirdly, ground yourself in the truth. I would say, especially tonight, if you're a new believer, one of the best things you can do is get into one of our foundations class or uh, a class at a fellowship where you can be taught in the basic teachings and doctrines of the church. I would suggest a book to you called Great Doctrines of the Bible by William Evans. It's a great book. It is not too heady. It's not too theological. It's very simple, very practical, and very applicable. It's one of the books I first read as a Christian, Great Doctrines of the Bible by William Evans, and it's very, very good to get into. Now, in verse 15, um, after talking about the deception, comes the defilement. In verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, even their mind and their conscience have been defiled. Have you ever heard that misquoted? I have. Have you ever heard people do something they shouldn't do and to justify their sinful behavior? Well, to the pure, all things are pure. It's there in the Bible. You must be defiled. That's why you think this is sin. And so they may be looking at pornography. You say, you know, that's filthy. Well, filthy to you, but to the pure, all things are pure. Hey, this is God's creation, man. I'm just admiring God's creation. Well, you don't look at trees like that, I notice. You don't do a second take at the clouds. It's not the idea here. The idea is in reference to those teachers who have come into their fellowships, who believed in a ritual-based righteousness. That is, if you do this, then you're holy. If you don't do that, then you're holy. And they had a set of rules and regulations regarding food. And that's the idea. To the pure, all things, the idea is created food. That's the original word. 
all things that God has created for food, because there were these Jewish legalists who had come into the church. There was a little bit of Jewish legalism, a little bit of Christian doctrine, a little bit of mysticism, a little bit of tradition. They were called the Gnostics. And they had these ideas of what is holy and what is not holy. And so they were trying to impose a dietary system that was part of their vibe onto the church. And they were saying, don't eat that food. That's impure food. And if you don't eat that impure food, you'll be holier. Now, this is pure food. This is okay to eat. Paul said the problem is not with impure food. It's with impure hearts of impure people who make everything pure that God has made impure. Now, the ideas came from, just to be fair, Leviticus chapter 11, where God gives a whole list of dietary regulations for the Jewish people. They were very good laws. They were not meant to cramp their style. He gave it to them because he loved them. For instance, if they were going to eat a beast, an animal, there was a criteria they had to follow. It had to chew the cud and have cloven hoofs. They could never eat an animal that had been uh, naturally killed or died of its own. It had to be killed and bled properly. And certain animals that had natural parasites, like the pig in those days, they didn't have the same cooking system or disinfecting systems, could give diseases to people. And some of the great doctors who have read the Bible have said this was one of the best health measures and hygienic measures God could have imposed upon his people. And so he did. And he did that because he loved him. Well, what happened is... By the New Testament times, some of the Pharisees, scribes, and later on, some of the Gnostics said that if you keep these laws, then you are holy and pure and righteous. And some of them would equate, certainly the Pharisees did. If you were to go out and eat a pig or a rabbit, which is considered unclean, that's as bad as if you were to commit adultery. I mean, it's all on the same level to them. There was no distinction. And so Paul is contradicting that by saying to the pure, all things are pure. By the way, remember Jesus got hassled about eating certain foods and washing hands before they ate. They came to Jesus in Matthew 15. They said, Master, how come your disciples don't wash their hands the right way like we do? What they meant is, according to rabbinical tradition, you raise the hands up toward heaven, somebody pours water on the tips of the fingers or run down the hands, uh, the wrist, and the elbows. Then you turn your hands upside down, they run it from the elbows, the forearms, and it has to drip off the forefingers. You do that three times. There's always water nearby when you eat. If you don't do it that way, it's not proper. And what did Jesus say? He said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out from his heart that defiles a man. Now, if you're into dietary restrictions, that's fine. I suppose you are because you're on a diet. Or you just feel like you want to be healthy. So maybe you say, I'm a vegetarian. Great. But the minute you say, I'm a vegetarian, therefore I'm holier than you are, then you've got a problem. I had a guy come up to me when I lived at the beach. I was eating a burger, playing my guitar. I was out on the front lawn. It was summertime. Beautiful day. Ocean breeze blowing through those palm trees. I was looking down and I saw two feet wrapped in sandals standing there. It was attached to a character 
that had a long white robe on and a beard and long hair. And I'm thinking, man, it's the rapture. (laughs) The first words out of his mouth, he says, I think he asked me, are you a Christian? I saw my Bible there. I said, yeah, I am. He goes, how come you're eating that hamburger? And I was taken off guard. What? what? I mean, is it like you work for Burger King or what? What is this? I think it was a Big Mac that I was eating. And he went on to rebuke me for being less spiritual than he was because God never intended man to eat meat. That was his whole trip. So if I wanted to be holy and righteous, I had to put that down, repent of my meat eating, and then I'd be holy. That's the thing these guys were into. He said, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled, and they were defiled because of their ritualism, they were defiled because of their narrow thinking, they were defiled because they took something out of a biblical context and imposed a man-made tradition on other people. And he calls them here undefiled. In Romans chapter 14, just to buttress that, he said, As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. So if you're not into it, great, don't be into it. But then don't push it on me. Romans 14.20 says, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. So if me eating this burger is going to offend you, I won't eat it in your presence. Because then there's a higher law of love and regard for that brother. I mean, I'm not going to sit down and tear into it. Mmm, man, this is good. That would be cruel. And so the higher law of love supersedes the law of liberty. Though I can eat it, and I'll wait till he goes around the corner and I'll eat a couple more. But I won't do it in his presence. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So, they were coming in. They were imposing an old standard, what they could and couldn't eat what they could and couldn't do instead of living by grace and living by liberty. You know, in the Gulf War, they had an interesting phrase. You remember? They called it friendly fire. It was when that plane came in and set out that heat-sensing Maverick missile. And as it was detecting a Maverick, uh, the, where the heat was coming from, our troops had fired previously, and instead of hitting the Iraqi tank, it got one of our armored carriers and killed seven men in the Gulf War. And so they call that friendly fire because we killed our own accidentally. And that was a tragedy. It was a tragedy at that time. What a tragedy it is to have friendly fire in the church. Where we're killing our own. Where we use all of our energy and ammunition to start firing off bullets at each other. What would you eat today? Oh, look what you're wearing. Oh, you believe that? That's kind of goofy. Pull out the gospel gun. Let's save our ammunition and use it in the right places. Not against the church. Now, again, there's that line between what is essential and non-essential. And when they're non-essential issues, big deal. If they're essential, then as Paul said, you have to withdraw. Now we close with verse 16 tonight. 
And the third result of following these heretics is disqualification. The first is deception. The third is disqualification. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. You see, the problem isn't just teaching. It's where does that teaching lead to? What kind of living does that teaching produce? And so if someone comes to me and says, Skip, I've got a hot new teaching. I just heard it at a seminar last week in this city or that city. You've got to tell the church. Or we've been finding out some things that are happening in our country and we believe it. You owe it to the church to tell them. I'll say, you know what? Why don't we just wait a while and watch you? Let's see what this new teaching or this new truth you've uncovered, what it does it do to your life? What kind of fruit does it produce? If it makes you meaner, more hateful, more unlike Christ, more fearful, more paranoid, we're not going to share it with anybody. But we're going to watch what it does to your life because what you believe determines how you behave. And it affected the guys who were teaching it here. They became disobedient and disqualified. The word in some translations is reprobate. That is, they haven't passed the divine test. Disqualified for every good work. And notice they profess to know God. They profess that they know God. Do you know people like that? One of the big questions I have, it comes up quite regularly, is, Skip, I have a friend, says he's a Christian, but is living in overt sinful activity without any desire to change at all. Claims he's a Christian. Now read that verse again. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. You see, though a true believer is never perfect, we've all got lots of flaws We're far from perfect. Our works and our words should be matching up. More and more and more. Faith without works is dead, James said. Jesus said, many will come to me in that day and they will claim certain things. Jesus will say, I never knew you. They profess. But, you know, profession and possession are two different things. John said these words in his epistle. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie And we do not practice the truth. You know, four out of five Americans say that they're Christians. Four out of five. Now think of all that goes on in in our nation of four out of five Christians. Does that reflect what you see on television? Four out of five Christians? Does that reflect the kind of movies that come out, the dribble that comes out? Four out of five Christians? Does that reflect the value systems of the laws and the courts of our country? Four out of five Christians? You say, well, everybody says they're a Christian, but you ought to be a born-again Christian. I agree, you do. Jesus said you do. But you know that 35 to 40% of all Americans say they're born again? That's a big percentage. George Barna, researching this, said, there's an interesting contradiction, however, between what most of us say we believe and what we do or don't do in response to those beliefs. 93% of all households own one or more Bible, but 12% of adults Read the Bible. 42% of Americans do not, uh, do not agree that the Bible is the written Word of God, and 58% did not know who preached the Sermon on the Mount. A profession and a possession can be miles apart. I heard of a, uh, a man who died, a very unsavory kind of a character had never darkened the door of a church or a place of worship in his entire adult life. He had his funeral at a church. The 
Family wanted it there. The minister who conducted the service didn't even know the guy he was burying. But he went on with these long accolades about how great this person was and what a good man he was. And after 10 minutes of this, finally, the wife turned to her son and said, Go run up and look in that casket and see if that's Papa. (laughs) She thought she was at the wrong funeral. Doesn't sound like the guy I married. This guy was making quite a profession about this man in the casket, but it was largely untrue. And that horrible word that we see in verse 16, disqualified for every good work, unapproved, as we said, unable to pass the test, or you might translate it, a moral castaway. A moral castaway. We are in a moral battle today. But the moral battle is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. Beyond just the morals of, you know, you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't do this and we ought to allow this in school, comes the heart of a human being. And there's lots of human beings in this country who profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, right? And they're disqualified for every good work. They couldn't finish the work if they tried because the real work has to take place first in the heart. The heart has to be changed. To the pure, all things are pure. How do you become pure? Well, it's obviously not like these guys. You don't hold your breath and memorize nice positive things and go take courses in how to better yourself. It comes through a purification of the heart. They tried all of these things to be righteous. And Paul said they were defiled. It comes like a true Christian comes. The way of the cross, humble and repentant. It comes by saying, Lord, I admit it, I'm not perfect, I'm a sinner. And I need the forgiving, cleansing blood of Jesus Christ to purify me. That's how you become pure, pure in heart. Let's pray. Father, tonight as we have discussed a very unsavory subject, it's very important because we are in a melting pot in this country and very especially in this state, a melting pot of spiritualism and many belief systems. There's so many roads. There's so many people being touted as prophets. And the more the truth is preached, it seems that it is heard less and less. Lord, we saw that from the very inception of Christianity that the church was in danger. Even more so now. As you predicted in the last days would come a proliferation of this activity. As our Lord Jesus told us to beware of false prophets, help us, Lord, to take heed to that. Lord, give to your church discernment. And Lord, you said if your people who are called by your name would humble themselves, would turn and change their wicked ways, pray, then you would look from heaven and heal our land. And it begins with us, Lord, and it begins in the pulpit. I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse those who are ministers of the gospel and evangelists from that which is not solidly, squarely based upon the truth of the Word of God. Lord, I pray that you would continue to raise up godly men, godly women, godly churches to stem the tide. 
Father, we're so grateful that you have purified our hearts. And now to us, those who are pure, not because we're pure in and of ourselves, but made pure by you, that all things are pure. You've given us all things freely to enjoy. And I pray, Lord, that we would enjoy our walk and our relationship with Jesus Christ. As we grow, Lord, I pray that it would get better and better. As we heard in some of the testimonies tonight of your goodness, your graciousness. I pray that that would be our testimony as well. And we finally pray, Lord, if there are some among us who have never been made pure by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that tonight would be that watershed evening when all the past comes to an end and you give them a new start. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.